0: How are you out there? Amen. Good. Saying to the worship team, I've been playing guitar since I was around seven. And every time worship is over, I'm sad that I have to quit playing. So I'm just going to put my Bible down and go back and play. Get your Bibles out tonight. We're in Ephesians. Uh, We're preaching our way through the first... Chapters. We're in chapter 2. I'm going to read uh, verses 17 through 22. This is the fourth installment from chapter 2, so we're taking our time. We're savoring what the Lord has given us here, and uh, it rightfully so, because there's so much in the text here that we can enjoy. So let's bless the word tonight, and then I'm going to read verses 17 through 22. Father, we thank you tonight for your goodness and your love for us, for all the things you did for us today that we realized and for the things that we didn't even notice. You kept us. You protected us. You got us to and from work. You kept us safe in traffic, Lord. You you protected us from the lies of the enemy and from the attacks of the wicked. You've done all this today, Lord, according to your word, because you're faithful. So Father, tonight we're here on purpose and we're here because of a divine appointment that you meant for us to be here to sit under the word tonight so that it can challenge us and stretch us and change us from the inside out. So do just that in us tonight, we ask in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Did you know Jesus was a preacher? For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father so that you are no longer strangers and foreigners but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Let's just stop there. There's so much. So we're going to pick that apart and enjoy it. Uh, this is part four of chapter two. The theme of chapter two uh, is being made alive in Christ. We talked about being in him in chapter one. Notice a slight progression here, a little shift in gears. We're in him, and when we're in him, we become alive in Christ. Amen. How many understand uh, from a theological perspective, regeneration means that before we were born again, we were dead. There was a part of us, body, soul, and spirit, but the spirit was dormant. Why? Because we were born under original sin. So that spirit that was dormant, you know, caused us to have a body and a soul, but yet we were walking around spiritually dead, disconnected from God. Yet Jesus came he shattered the power of sin. He broke its dominion over us so that we could become born again and enter into relationship with God now alive to have a spirit-to-spirit connection. It's not an accident that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not an accident that we're told to walk in the Spirit. Why? Because that's our lifeline and our connection to God. Have you ever seen a deep-sea diver that goes down in them suits and they got those big, you know, helmets on? You've all seen that before, Right? The most important part of the gear is the hose that connects that suit to the oxygen supply on the surface. Amen? And that's what us being alive in Christ is. We're connected to God by the Holy Spirit because he dwells in us. So so much going on here. We've been regenerated. We're alive in him, the dormant part of us. Uh, is now activated and alive. We've been adopted. We've been made part of God's own family by the grace of God and the cross of Christ. We've been transformed, we talked about last week, from being the uncircumcision to being grafted in with the circumcision. So if you weren't here last week, uh, listen to that installment, an interesting study. Uh, Us Gentiles were the uncircumcision. Uh, I'm uncomfortable with circumcision of any kind at this point in my life. And uh, I'm glad that the cutting away of the flesh has allowed me to have a spiritual connection with God. Amen. So we pick up in verse 17 here. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away. That's us Gentiles. And peace to those who were near. Speaking of the Jews there. So. Verse 17 starts with more affirmations for us Gentiles. We got a little beating uh, back in those verses there when uh, he showed how disconnected we were, how lost we were, how our lives were separated from God and we were without hope in the world. Now there's affirmations to us as Gentiles who were the uncircumcision but are now grafted in with the circumcision. We've been made alive in Christ. Jesus came to die for our sins. We get that but he also came to preach a message. And a lot of people miss this. I kind of you know, put it out there. Jesus was a preacher. And of course, he gave the Sermon on the Mount, and he shared the principles of the kingdom and all of these things. But most of us don't think of him as being a preacher, but he came with a specific message. Just as John the Baptist had a specific message, Jesus had a specific message for that season as he walked the earth. Now, He died for our sins, but he also uh, came not just for the cross, but to preach a message. The message he preached was the fact that the kingdom of God is near, just as John was trying to prepare us for. the, The kingdom of God is near, and the gospel that is coming on the other side of the cross is what will bring us near to God. Remember, John was always, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus said things to certain people, you know, when they articulated a level of truth to him. He said, you're not far from the kingdom of God, or you're you're close to the kingdom of God. There was a lot of people who were close, but not quite there yet. What was going to bridge that gap to where people were on the outskirts, they would catch a glimpse, they would get a little bit of understanding. The cross is what bridged the gap now that we can be from just close, but not really into, you're your part of the kingdom of God now. And understand that, that these affirmations for us Gentiles all have to do with the gospel. Without the gospel, we're still lost in our sins. The gospel is important. You say, well, what is the gospel? Uh, in fact, ask me that. I'm so glad you asked. It's in my notes here. Let me tell you. The gospel is simple. Let's make it as simplistic as possible. Jesus, God's only son, was born to a virgin and came to earth to live a sin-free life. He died on the cross in our place. That's important. He rose again on the third day. He broke the power of sin, and he offers eternal life to anyone who approaches him by faith. Simple, right? I think we can even get it simpler than that, but, you know, that was as simple as I wanted to get it for tonight. But, you know, you could go, Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus offered salvation to us. That's pretty simple, right? The important thing is that we understand what the gospel is. So it can save us, yes, but also so we can articulate it to people, amen? Because that's our message. Jesus had a message. The church needs to have a message too. Our message is the gospel, amen? The gospel is the good news, you ever notice people get aggravated with Christians, don't want to hear Christians? Oh, you're talking about that Bible, that Christian stuff. It's amazing how the world doesn't even like good news. But they'll watch the bad news all day. I had the TV on today and the bad news was on. And I wasn't even paying attention to it. I was in another room. I had to go turn it off because it was just like there was just bad coming out of the room. The gospel's good news. And we've got to be able to articulate the gospel. It's simple. The word gospel literally means good news. You know, and it's 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 what summed up the preaching of Jesus: that he was sharing the good news that the kingdom was near. His message, you know, look what his message was here. And he came and he preached peace. Peace to who who were far away, and peace to those who were near. So that's the that's the crux of the message there. Peace. What does peace have to do with the gospel? Well everything. The gospel is what brokers peace for us on every level. The gospel brings peace to the heart of every sinner. Without the gospel, you know, we're in our sins and we're stuck in this state and we're unhappy and we're miserable and and eternity is scary and we don't know what we're doing here. and We don't know where we're going. Yet the gospel comes what? And brings peace to every sinner's troubled heart the gospel brings peace between God and man. Before the cross, there was enmity between God and man. Why? Because we were sinners and God is holy. Sin, a sinful person and a holy God just doesn't see eye to eye. Not on the same page. That's why when you and I, as Christians, you know, give ourselves over to sin and participate in sin, we're we're, we're kind of estranging ourselves from God. Not that God, you know, rejects us, cuts us off, or, you know, he, he's, he's like, you know, that's it, I'm done with you. No, he contends with us, he, he has patience with us, but sin estranges us from God. And here's the gospel coming to bring peace, and that peace is like, you know, that, you know, our sins are dealt with. Uh, our sin has been decisively dismantled. The power of it has been broken. That should bring peace to everyone's heart tonight, amen? You know, some of us have been saved so long, we forgot what it feels like to be in the despair of sin. That when the preacher's up here trying to describe it, you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. You know, it's good that, you know, we're saved, and it's good that we have a hard time remembering what it feels like, you know, not to be in Christ, not to be part of the kingdom, but sometimes we have to just remember where we came from so we're thankful for what we have in Jesus. Someone say amen. So the gospel brokers peace to us on every level, peace between God and man, peace, peace within you know, the body of Christ. Do you ever notice that any group of people can get together and you know, even if they're a group that agrees on something, you know, if you get people together long enough, they'll start fighting about something. And if you get people in close proximity to one another, you're going to have conflicts. Come on, anybody know people? Anybody been around people? Anyone have a family? You know what I'm talking about. I mean, just, you know, there, there's always like, you know, in close proximity, it's all of a sudden there's rubs and there's conflicts. Do You know, the body of Christ is the place where the peace of God gives us a unity that should erase all of what I'm describing, Amen. And it's a powerful thing. And you might think, well, you know, there's trouble in church. There's trouble with Christians. Yep, that's because we haven't realized the fullness of our unity. We haven't, uh, you know, established the peace. But, you know, God has given us the gospel to make us one. We're a family in in the body of Christ, amen. Now, we know about families. There, you know, there's conflict. But we have a level of peace as brothers and sisters that There's nothing, there's no other organization in the world that compares to the body of Christ. Amen? If you look around this room right now, the diversity of people from all different places, with all different, you know, mentalities and mindsets, yet here we are tonight together as one in unity, and we have peace. No one's fighting right now, so praise God. Wait till you're in the lobby as we're going home. But... That's from the gospel. That's what the gospels brokered for us. He preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. That's who the peace is offered to: the far and the near. Uh, we know from the context of the chapter that this directly applies to the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews were near. Why? They were the people of God. Yet they had drifted away from God and, and kind of, you know, went into legalism. they kind of, you know, uh, they kind of lost the sense of Closeness to God, being God's people, especially the religious leaders of the day. As Jesus walked the earth, they were all about rule keeping. Um, We've talked about this on Sunday in the series that we're in in Matthew. Uh, Legalism kills, amen. Legalism kills grace. Now, uh, on the other side of that, you know, we say, well, don't be legalistic. But I've seen people, you know, break the commandments of God and say, and when you call them on saying, oh, you're just being legalistic. I've had people tell me who, you know, we're not married and move in together and we're sleeping together, you know, not to question that because I'm being legalistic. No, that's not legalism. Amen. You know, it's either legalism or don't judge me. Only God can judge me. Well, I work for him and he sent me to tell you (laughs) that the word of God says you better quit that out or you better buy a flame retardant suit because it's not going to work out good in eternity that's a whole nother sermon. But the peace was brokered to those who were far and those who were near. Obviously, the Jews, being God's people, uh, were near to him, yet the gospel applies to them in a sense where even though they had all these great covenants, now they can partake of the new uh, and better covenant in Christ Jesus. Certainly, uh, God is offering peace to the Jews as his chosen people. He's not done with Israel yet. He still has a plan for them when the church age is over and we're raptured out of here. God is squarely going to fix his gaze on Israel again and reestablish them in the earth and protect them from all of what happens in the tribulation period. So there's the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And we were the ones who were far away. And we've talked about this, how far away we were. We were, you know, messed up, disconnected from God, lost in our sin, without hope in the world. We had no covenant to stand on. Remember we talked about covenants? The Jews had a, a system of approaching God, whether it was the Mosaic covenant or the Abrahamic covenant or the Davidic covenant that applies to some things, through the Messiah coming through the line of David. All, all of these things they had. We had nothing. You know, we, we, we had no basis to show up and make any demands on God or expect anything from him. Tough being a Gentile, huh? And now he says, I'm offering peace to those who are far and those who are near. That's a beautiful thing. The the gospel uh, is the universal thing that brings unity and offers salvation to all. Now, the far and the near, that pretty much encompasses every person on the earth right now. Amen? Uh, Certainly, there are billions of souls that fall within these two categories far, and near. Really, the only other category that there is is someone who's saved. Because if you're saved, then you're in Christ. Then, you know, you're in him, right? But if you're far or you're near, you're still lost. So if you're not a Christian, you're going to fall into one of those two categories. You're going to be far from God or near from God. Now, I want to say something about the gospel and the peace that is offered to God. Jesus is for everybody, Let me say that again. We need to get it. Jesus is for everybody. He's not for a certain culture. He's not just for a certain uh, skin color. He's not just for a certain hem and fear. I've heard people say, well, that's Western Christianity. As opposed to what? European Christianity? As opposed to Chinese Christianity? African Christianity? Listen, there's only one Christianity. And that's biblical Christianity. People, you know, it's almost like... (laughs) The the, the shades and the the divisions and all that stuff, all that's man-made. You're either part of the body of Christ or you're not. So, you know, Jesus is for everybody. And what does that mean, the near and the far? Well, he's for the down and outer as much as he is for the up and outer. You know, many people think, oh, that poor person all beat up and messed up, hooked on drugs and alcohol. Well, that's the person who really needs Jesus. Not the person with the fat bank account and three cars and a vacation home. No, that, that guy's doing fine. No, Jesus died for the up and outer just as much as the down and outer. We got to get this for the far and the near. I've been around people. I remember doing missionary work in Manhattan, going out and, you know, handing out tracts to people in the business district and on a Wall Street and stuff. And I remember having people throw tracts, Bible tracts, right in my face up and outer. I don't need you. Look at my suit. Look at my shoes. Armani. Probably the guy's shoes cost more than all my clothes together. But he was he, he thought, you know, well, I don't need Jesus. That's for the down and outer. But Jesus is for everybody for the up and outer too. He's for the rich man as well as the poor man. He's for the unchurched person or the churched person or the religious and lost. Some people don't know anything about God, never been to church. Jesus is for them. Some people go to religious organizations that call themselves churches, yet they sit there week after week and they're not saved. Religious and lost. What a sad state to be in. Yet that describes multiplied millions of people that, you know, they go to a religious institution, but they do not have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. The unchurched or the religious and lost. Jesus is for both of them. He's for the new ager. He's for the pagan. He's for the agnostic. He's for the atheist. He's for the Jew, for the Muslim, for the Buddhist. Yeah, he's for all of them too. Well, they got to repent, and they got to re- Yeah, you, you and I have to repent, too. Amen? That's when I talk to people from other faiths. You know, I don't argue with them about their religious system. And I took cults and world's religion, world religions in Bible school, and, you know, I, I can argue, and I can tell them, you know, but what I, what I do is just offer them Jesus. Because once he grabs a hold of them, he'll straighten all that other mess out. So this peace that comes through the gospel that is offered to us, that message that Jesus was preaching, it's for everybody. Verse 18 illuminates an important truth that we all need to know. Listen to verse 18, see if you can get it. For through him we both have our access, who? The near and the far, the quick and the dead. (laughs) For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Now, What I want to zero in is that word access and point out this. Jesus is our all-access ticket to all things concerning the kingdom of God. If you're going to get anywhere in the kingdom, you need Jesus. Amen. And then you have to come to Jesus by faith, and then the currency of the kingdom is faith. So you need Jesus, and then you need faith, and then you can operate in the kingdom of God. So Jesus is our access point through him, we both have our access in one spirit. This is so important that people want to come uh, into a spiritual relationship in other ways without Jesus. And I want to just say that, as I say it all the time, that's impossible. You can't get to God without the son. Now, I want, to, I want to touch on three things here. Ignoring the fact that Jesus provides the only access point for a strange man to connect with God is uh, you know a spiritual death sentence and here's why because there's only one mediator 1 Timothy 2:5 for there is one God and one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus amen you might want to write these down 1 Timothy 2:5 there is one God amen and one mediator between God and men, that man, Christ Jesus. You know what? There's only one name, Acts 4, 11, 12. This is the stone which you builders rejected which has become the chief cornerstone. Listen to verse 12 of Acts 4. Nor is there salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one mediator, there's only one name, and John 14:6 says there's only one way. Jesus said to him, "I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Get this. One mediator, one name, and one way. Jesus is our all-access ticket. You know, and that's what Ephesians is trying to get through to us tonight. Amen. Amen. Somebody get excited. Praise God. These, you say, Pastor, we know all this stuff. I know all this stuff, too. I've been preaching since I'm 14. The thing is, we need to hear it over and over again, amen, Till it gets in us till you know, till it's not just the head knowledge, but it's in our hearts, it's in our spirits, amen. Because a lot, a lot of Scripture, a lot of theology we have is head knowledge. I'm telling you, when some of this stuff becomes real to us and we get it in our spirit, man, something explodes inside us you know, and it brings a maturity to us. Why? Because when I really understand that there's one mediator, I'm going to stop running here and I'm going to stop running there. I'm going to stop talking to this one and that one and listening to this and calling up that and getting on this hotline. And I'm just going to go to Jesus. Amen. I'm not going to pray to saints. I'm not going to pray to dead people. Hello? Because the Bible says there's one mediator. Amen. There's only one name. There's only one way. And so when we really get this in us, it brings a level of spiritual maturity that brings us freedom and brings us peace. What do we have access to according to this verse? Two things. Number one, we have access, what, in one spirit to the Father. So number one, we have access to the Holy Spirit. The, The oneness of the Spirit is the unity of the Holy Spirit, uh, as a byproduct of us having the Holy Spirit in us, we have unity as believers, as members of the body of Christ. What allows us to all come from different backgrounds, different places, different cultures, different ethnicities, different upbringings? What allows us all to come together and be one? It's the Holy Ghost. That's the only thing. Oh, it's because, you know, we have good teaching and we really like each other. we got a good group of people. (laughs) Come on, without the Holy Ghost, we'd be eating each other in two days. It's amazing without God how quick humanity devolves. And so it's the Holy Spirit we have access to. To the Holy Spirit. And that, that's an amazing thing. That's something that, you know, we don't take advantage of enough that we have the Holy Spirit who's our comforter, who's our teacher, who's our guide, who, you know, who's our advocate. The Holy Spirit's all those things for us. Listen, if you and I are not communing with the Holy Spirit constantly all day, we are wasting our opportunity. Amen. The, first the babies cry out, then the rocks. So let's let's get an amen going once in a while. So the, the fact that we have access to the Holy Spirit is an amazing gift, one we should use more often. One Spirit, the, the Spirit brings unity. We talked about that. Also, according to this verse, we have access to what? The Spirit and to the Father. Now, many many of us get confused sometimes about our, our connection to the Father in the sense where, you know, where the Holy Spirit drew us, and Jesus saved us, and he's our Lord, and he's our Savior, and the Father's just kind of floating around out there. No, Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit connects us to Jesus, and Jesus gives us access to the Father. So the, the Father, is, having access to the Father is no small thing. In fact, it's everything, It's why Jesus died. Jesus didn't die so we could, you know, hang out with him. He died to reconnect us to the father because sin had separated us from him. Amen. So having access to the father, people think, oh, well, you know, I got Jesus. I got the Holy Spirit. I got the church family. No, access to the father is not a small thing. It's actually everything. It's the point It's the point of our lives that now we're connected to God. Why? Because it's the key to our peace, our joy, our purpose, and our fulfillment in life. We can't be fulfilled without having a connection to the Father. When Jesus walked the earth, he said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. My meat is to do the will of him who sent me. Guess what our meat is? To do the will of him who sent us, who saved us, who filled us with the Holy Spirit. It's not doing your own thing. It's not building your own empire. It's not, you know, surrounding yourself with pleasantries and comforts and people who like you. Good luck on that one. It's about doing the will of the Father. So Jesus being our all-access ticket it gives us access to Jesus, uh, obviously, because we're saved by him, but we also have access to the Holy Spirit, which is an amazing gift. I encourage you to to commune with the Spirit, connect with the Spirit, ask the Holy Spirit questions all day, talk to Him. Come on. Some of you are looking at me like, uh, you know, I'm crazy up here. Yeah, I, I don't just talk to myself all day. I talk to the to the Lord. I talk to the Holy Spirit. There's times where I'm in the Word, and I'm like, uh, you know, I'm reading, and I'm like, Holy Spirit, what does this mean? I'll say that out loud. Well, just go to the commentaries. You got commentaries, right? No, I... I I don't care what Matthew Henry says. I want to know what Jesus... Holy Spirit, show me. And he shows me. He illuminates the text. It explodes. It comes alive. And hopefully I can articulate it in a way that you'll get it too. But connect with the Holy Spirit. uh, Commune with him. uh, Allow him to teach you, guide you, convict you, stretch you. And then... Pray and have access to the Father and enjoy knowing Him and allowing Him to reveal Himself to you by His divine attributes and seek Him for His perfect will for your life. Verse 19 fleshes out our new spiritual status that we have in Christ. Listen to this. So that you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. That, that verse 19 is chock full of awesome stuff. No longer strangers and foreigners. Now, I didn't say you are no longer strange. Don't get excited. A lot, do you ever notice Christians are pretty weird? A lot of them. Yeah. Don't, don't act like that. I'm talking about you, yeah. It's biblical. We are a peculiar people. Amen. We're a little different. We're out of step, amen? God saved the foolish things of the world. He takes them, what, to confound the wise. Who is he talking about, the foolish things? So Christians are a little different. They're a little weird, amen? You know, we used to talk about the granola church. Uh, You know, the granola church is fruits, nuts, and flakes. You ever been been to one of them churches? Have a little fun on Wednesday night. Christians are different. We're a peculiar people. That's okay. But look what he says: We're no longer strangers and foreigners. Uh, we were out of step with everything that had to do with the kingdom of God when we were lost. We talked about that, right? We were Gentiles. We were pagans. We were disconnected from God, and we were out of step with everything that had to do with God and His kingdom. We were like bacon at a bar mitzvah. We didn't fit in. Okay. And some of you still don't smile. It's hopeless. Think about that. We we were just, we didn't belong. We didn't fit in. Yet now it's saying here, you know, we're no longer strangers or foreigners. This is is huge. We didn't fit in, but now we fit in perfectly. We've been made alive in him. We are part of the body of Christ. We're legitimate sons and daughters and uh, uh, genuinely part of the family of God. It's amazing, isn't it? We didn't fit in, we didn't sync up, we didn't see eye to eye, and and now we fit perfectly. Isn't it amazing in the transformation when we get saved? The things we used to think, the things we used to do, the things we used to support, come on. Some of us, the things we did, the things we put in our bodies, the things we did with our bodies that we thought, this is great. This is what life's about. This is, you know, you know, this is what I want to do. And then all of a sudden you're saved and you don't want anything to do with that. Everything changes. Your worldview changes. Your politics change. Your, your ideologies change. People who used to support abortion are now praying for its end. How does that happen? You've been brought into sync with the kingdom of God. You're no longer strangers or foreigners. You didn't fit in Now you fit in perfectly. woo. So we're no longer strangers or foreigners. Listen to this. We are fellow citizens with the saints. Let's unpack this one here. The concept of being a spiritual citizen is important for us to grasp. Why? Because we are in the world but not of the world. When you became a Christian and you got born again, your citizenship changed. You are now part of God's kingdom. And listen, when you're born again and part of the kingdom of God, in the family of God, you're part of God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. You're not a citizen of earth. You're not a citizen of New York. No matter how quickly you try and leave New York, you're a citizen of heaven. when did that happen? When you got born again. When you made Jesus the Lord of your life, he made you part of the kingdom of God, which is not an earthly kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. So your citizenship changed. My citizenship changed. We're in the world right now, but we're not of the world anymore. We are citizens of heaven. The Bible describes us as sojourners. We're just passing through. We're just passing through this life on the way to eternity with God got to get this. Because too many Christians think, well, I'm here and this is my one chance and I got to enjoy life and I got a bucket list and I got to do this and I got to build my kingdom here. Why in the world would you do that? You're just going to leave it behind. Amen. We should what? Have treasure in heaven. The enemy tricks us. I got to have all my treasure on earth. I got to have all my pleasure on earth. I got to have all my fun on earth. why this is not your final destination heaven is heaven's where we're going to have our treasure and our pleasure and our bliss for eternity i'm looking forward to going i don't know if you're coming with me but i don't so we're citizens not of this world but we're citizens of heaven. And it's important that you think about that and get that and know that and let it affect your daily living. But there's a little bit more in this verse here. We're fellow citizens with the saints. Say the word saints. Let's talk about saints a little bit in verse 19 here. We're, fellow, we're not strangers and foreigners, but we're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So that word saints there is important. And I want to give you a news flash tonight no matter what spiritual background or religious system you've grown up in or come out of i want to just maybe blow some of your minds tonight with telling you every single one of you tonight are saints let me try this side of the room not so much on this side of the room but everyone over here are saints ooh there the saints are over here okay let's well, let's give you guys another chance you guys are saints All right, now I like that. We got a little ooh ooh going, that's nice. So, you know, we get confused in Christendom with some of this sainthood stuff. Uh, You know, we're citizens of heaven, we're not of this earth, we're just passing through, but we are also seen by God in his eyes as saints. And all of us are saints, not according to a religious construct that man made that defines what sainthood is, but in a biblical sense. If you look at Paul, as he addressed all of the New Testament churches, he would say to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints at Corinth, to the saints at Philippi, what were those? There were super extra, you know, special Christians there. He was talking just to them. No, he was talking, they were new fledgling baby Christians, Yet he referred to them as saints. Was it semantics? Was he just being polite? Was he kind of just, you know, tongue-in-cheek kind of jabbing at them? Yeah, you guys, you little baby Christians barely saved. You're saints. No, he was dead serious. Why were they saints? Because they were in Christ. They were in him and made alive in him, and they had the seal of God in them by the Holy Ghost. They were born again and filled with the Spirit of God, and God looked at them as his children and his saints, and Paul called them saints. Now, man gets in there in these religious systems and makes a construct of, you know, what a saint is, and religious systems have made their own definition of sainthood, and they created their own criteria. And, and it's all based on works. I'm going to go over this in just a second here. But I want you to spot this right out of the box. When religious systems call somebody a saint, it's because they've evaluated their works and, and judged them as super spiritual, worthy of veneration. <laughs> By the works of the flesh shall no one be justified. How can my sainthood be equated to the fact that I did a whole bunch of good works if that won't even save me. Now, these constructs here of what, uh, you know, what sainthood is, uh, I want to give you the four steps to sainthood in the Roman church. The first step to sainthood in the Roman church is this. Someone has to suggest that this person was a saint. So first of all, you got to be dead. That didn't seem to faze some of you. To be a saint, so Paul is talking to to the saints of Philippi, to the saints of Corinth. They were all alive, hello. To be a saint in the Roman church, first of all, someone has to suggest that the person was a saint. Then the Vatican either approves or denies the petition for consideration of sainthood. Sounds pretty formal, doesn't it? Number two, the second step. A church official called a postulator, can't find that in the Bible. It's not Greek, I don't know what it is. A postulator advocates for the candidate's sainthood by gathering testimony proving they lived a life of heroic virtue. I don't know what heroic virtue is. I don't know if you have to quote John 3:16 while jumping off Niagara Falls. Number 3, there must be proof that the candidate worked at least one miracle through their intercession or they were martyred. Again, you got to be dead or you gotta work at least one miracle. Finally, you need proof of a second miracle that's required uh, by church officials to declare the person a canonized saint. I wanna pick out the common thread here of all four of those steps we just covered. And the common thread is none of them are in the Bible. And the second thing is they all have to do with works. You got to have a miracle. You got to do this. You got to live heroic faith. You got to have somebody's got to suggest you that's got to be approved. None of this is biblical. Now, if you want to have a saint club where you make the rules of who gets in, God bless you. But as far as the Bible goes, we're all saints. And we're saints not because of our works. We're saints because we're covered in the blood of Jesus. Amen. We're saints because the Lamb of God took away our sins. And when God sees us, he didn't say, oh, there's Rick. He's, he's living some heroic faith. Everybody come watch. No, he's going, there's Rick, a sinner saved by grace, covered in the blood of the lamb. Woo! I see Jesus. He's my son, and he's a saint because Christ is in him, the hope of glory. Come on tonight. Don't wilt on me yet. We're almost done. So we're citizens and we're saints We're saints by the blood of the Lamb. All believers are saints. Whether you like it or not, get used to it. You are a saint. I would suggest that we start acting like it. Least we be accused of conduct unbecoming of a saint. I'll just leave that there. Okay, and so we finish up the verse here, verse 19, we're no longer strangers or foreigners. We're fellow citizens and saints and are of God's household. So the third thing that I want to pull out of uh, verse 19 is that we're part of God's household. There again, you say, well, what's the significance of that? Being part of a household comes with privileges and benefits. If you're part of somebody's household, you know, you have a key to the door. You know, I, I, don't let my, I don't let my children stay outside and they got to knock and show ID. They, they have a key to the door. They're welcome to come and go anytime they have access. Because we're part of God's household, we have access to kingdom things. We have a key to the kingdom, amen. Also, we've got a seat at the table. Come on, if you're part of a household, you you got a chair. You come into my kitchen, there's a chair for all four of us, and the dog sits next to me because I'm the messiest. So you got the chairs there, one for me, one for Kim, one for Riley, one for Austin. Everybody's got a seat. If you're part of the kingdom of God, you're part of the family of God, you're part of the household of God, you got a seat at the table. It's so important to get this tonight. You know, you wouldn't show up and they have to pull, you know, some stool out of the other room for you to sit on. You know, them weird chairs you pull out of the closet for guests, you know. One's this high, one's that high. You got one person down here. Grandma's up in the air three feet. No, there's a seat at the table with your name on it because you're part of the household of God. You've got keys to the door, access to the kingdom. You know what else you got? You got a bed to sleep in under the roof of God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Here's your room. Here's your bed. It's an important thing. If you live in a house and you don't have a room, you don't have a bed to sleep in, you're on the couch, you're in the basement, you can sleep on the lawn, that's not really being part of the family, is it? But because we're part of God's household, we've got keys, keys, and we've got a seat at the table, and we've got a room with a bed in it where we can sleep under God's roof. You say, what's the significance of that? We're under God's covering, God's roof. You know, your parents, when we grew up, your parents say, oh, not as long as you're under my roof, you're not going to. You know why? Because the roof was a covering, and the roof came with benefits, whether you knew it or not. You know, you you realize it when you move out and you have to buy everything that just magically appeared when you lived with your parents, right? The toothpaste doesn't fill itself up. The bed doesn't make itself. Breakfast doesn't hit the table by magic. Amen. And so that roof that we have being part of God's household is the covering of God. Do you realize how incredibly powerful it is for us to be covered by God? the covering of God everywhere we go. He protects us. He keeps us. He guides us. He directs us. On Sunday, I'm preaching through Matthew 12. We're going to be talking about the strong man and how if you you can't spoil the house till you bind the strong man, we're getting there, Hang in there a couple more weeks. But what's that all about? It's about covering. If I'm the king and the priest of my house, I cover everyone in the house. I cover my wife. I cover my children. When they come in, when they go out, they're covered. When I say, my sons out the door. I pray for them. I pray a covering over them. Amen. And it protects them from the enemy. Why? Because I'm the strong man. And as long as I'm right with God and the enemy can't bind me, my covering protects everything in my home. So significant things here, a bed to sleep in, a roof over our heads, keys to the door, a, na- a seat at the table, all of that is being part of God's household. Verse 20 gives us a quick glimpse into some New Testament church structure. I'm going to cover this fairly quickly. It says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So there's some New Testament church structure. The church rests on a sure foundation. What, what is the foundation comprised of? It's comprised of the apostles' doctrine and the prophetic fulfillments that were in the Old Testament that, that showed that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Look what it says here: built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Acts 2:42 talks about the early church continuing in the apostles' doctrine. What was that? The, the precepts and the, the things that they taught from the inception of the church, which become the foundational doctrines of the church. That was the apostles' doctrine. The, what's the church built on? The apostles' doctrine. Oh, that's old school stuff. We got, we got new. We're a contemporary church. We're, you know, we're we're the work church now. We we got our own rules. No, 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 no. You never get to depart from the word of God. You never get to throw aside the apostles' doctrine. You never get to throw aside the the things that the church was purposed to do. So we're built on the apostles' doctrine, and also we're built on uh the the Prophetic fulfillment. Look, the the prophets, what's that all about? Well, the prophets prophesied all throughout history prophecies about who the Messiah would be. And these messianic prophecies are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And when you look at the Old Testament, it's types and shadows that prove Jesus is who he says he is. So as New Testament Christians, we don't throw out the Old Testament. Amen? Amen. I was preaching through some books in the Old Testament, I had somebody come up to me and complain and say, I don't want to hear anything about the Old Testament. I want to hear about Jesus. So after they woke up from that left hook, I told them, you will sit there and listen to whatever I preach because the Holy Spirit told me to. (laughs) We don't get to throw aside the Old Testament. In fact, God stirred my heart, I might go back and preach through an Old Testament book soon. Oh, and there's joy in the camp. (laughs) And you're going to love it because, you know, it's just it's there's amazing things in there for us. But uh, the prophetic fulfillments show us who Jesus is, give us a a sturdy foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The Old Testament is important to us because it proves Jesus is who he claimed he was. The New Testament is important to us because it gives us a blueprint for living under the new covenant. Amen. How are we supposed to, I'm saved, now what do I do? New Testament, read it, get it in you. Uh, uh, old Testament, get in, get that stuff in you too. Proverbs will renew your mind, renew your way of thinking, uh, push out the old and, and get in the new, amen? So the Apostles' Doctrine and the prophetic fulfillment, all important to us. Uh, the last part of verse 20 is actually the bottom line for us on all things, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Remember, said Jesus is for everybody? Well, he's everything to us. He's the cornerstone of the building. The foundation might be comprised of the apostles' doctrine and the prophetic fulfillments and all of these New Testament precepts, but the cornerstone, the the the, the, the thing that makes the building straight and square and right and perfect is Jesus. And that's important for us to understand. He's gonna judge the living and the dead, he's the head of all things, head of the church. He has the name which is above all names, and he's our Savior. Verse 21 through 22, we close. It paints a picture of the body of Christ using the imagery of a physical building that is constructed as a temple of worship. Listen to 21 and 22. In whom the whole building, what building? It's a spiritual building. Being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Check that out. We, the body of Christ, are a spiritual building being built, uh, adding members to the church, uh, living stones the scripture talks about. That's you and I. Amen. All fitted together. Why? Because we have unity and purpose in the Holy Spirit. We are forming this construct, which is a place of worship where God can be glorified in the body of Christ. Beautiful imagery that is put together here for us by the Apostle Paul, for us to understand the organic nature of the body of Christ, that it's living, breathing, growing, and being constructed by the Holy Spirit until the day Jesus takes the church up to be his bride in heaven. Amen. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I thank you for all that we covered tonight. Father, I pray that each one of us got something out of here tonight that we can take home with us. Father, I pray that uh, we would understand Uh, what it is to be in him, and how amazing it is that we Gentiles are now grafted in, that we're no longer strangers or aliens. We didn't fit in, but now we fit in perfectly. We're part of the family of God, and that has benefits. Let us enjoy those benefits. Let us enjoy each other. Let us enjoy Jesus, because he is our greatest treasure. I pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Amen. Bless the Lord. I don't know. Do something. Clap. Boo.